I always say like you are a guest in someone's inbox and if they don't pick up what you're putting down, like that's on you. You didn't bring them the right gift. This is Inside HubSpot, where we take you behind the scenes to uncover the tactics and strategies that grew HubSpot to a $2 billion company with more than 180,000 customers globally. I'm your host, Kat Warboys. And throughout the show, we'll hear from HubSpotters, experts in their field on how we pioneered the inbound methodology, built an award-winning culture, uncovered new channels for growth, created a blog with more than 11 million subscribers, and much, much more. Whether you're a startup or a scale-up, a marketer or the CEO, you'll learn from our triumphs and our missteps that can be applied to help you grow better. As a marketer, it's crucial you know how to effectively communicate with your prospects and customers and where to reach them. The number of channels we have in our toolkit has exploded with channels like TikTok, Instagram, on-site chat, WhatsApp, influencers, and more. However, a recent survey conducted by HubSpot revealed email marketing is still one of the top three channels used by Aussie marketers. So this begs the question, despite the frequent headlines, is email marketing really dead? In this episode, we meet Evan Rowe and Casey Mast from our core automation team to put this age-old debate to rest. They'll share how HubSpot leverages email to drive demand and product usage, the systems and collaborations needed to scale a channel across teams and borders, and importantly, frameworks to help you build your own model to solve for a better email experience at every point of the customer lifecycle. Let's dive into the show. Ivan and Casey, you are both working, living, playing, everything in between uh, from the US, although yes, that is definitely going to be an Irish accent you detect on Ivan as we get into the topics. But Casey, you're a remote worker um, from the US. So just uh, for those that may not be familiar with how HubSpot has approached hybrid working, I was really hoping you could actually just give a quick explainer of what the options are when you work at HubSpot and how we approach hybrid and what remote working means for you. Yeah, I just joined as a remote employee. So I was one of the folks who never really experienced HubSpot offices, which has been actually really nice. I'm excited to get to go into the office and headquarters later this year. But I I do love the way that it's not just, you know, remote optional, but discouraged like some companies I've been exposed to. It's we have created the infrastructure for people to be able to be fully remote wherever they live, you're not remote and adapting to other people's time zones directly, like working East Coast hours strictly. I'm able to actually, you know, be with my kids and drop them off at school and work the hours that work best for me. And of course, there's times like today where we stay a little bit late to meet with teams around the world. But that's what I've really loved about it is when they made the decision to offer hybrid and offer flexible work, it really was. And let's make it work really, really well for the employees. Yeah, 100%. And those options are remote, which is obviously what you are. So going into the office, I feel for special events or occasions or for good work purposes. But we also have office, which means you're going into the office probably like three days a week and then flex, which is you're somewhere in between maybe going in a couple of days. Um, what's your work choice, actually? I don't think I know that. I think I'm flex, I which I don't use as much as I should because we uh, we don't do winters anymore. We, after doing one Boston winter, I was like, I'm never doing that again. Uh, so we tend to head south uh, for winter. But when I'm in the Boston, I like to go in like once a week. Honestly, though, 
even when I do, I'm still mostly on Zooms. And the reason for that is the pandemic enabled us to hire across the world and across the US. So it means that most of our direct team is not even in the Boston area anymore. So I like going into the office for the buzz to meet other people in different teams. But we have the best ha- of like, we've been able to get the best talent in the world, which means it's very distributed. Yeah, it's actually quite shocking that so many companies are bringing people and forcing people to come back into the office because definitely from our perspective, um, Australia is a big place and we really found that before COVID, we really just had Sydney-based people and we've been able to open up the talent pool to Melbourne, which is great because we used to get so much interest from people in Melbourne um, who didn't want to move. And yeah, all the way, I think we have somebody in Darwin as well. So yeah, I totally agree with you both on that one. Look, so today's topic is obviously uh, around email automation. So something that has been long a part of a marketer's toolkit. And so we want to know how we do it at HubSpot today. So Ivan, this is your area of expertise. And you've actually also been at HubSpot for just over six years now. So definitely one of our longer term employees. So I would really love to give people a bit more insight into your personal journey. Uh, What has that looked like uh, from when you joined? How have you noticed the company changed during that time? Yeah, so I joined HubSpot as my first ever marketing role. Before that, I'd worked briefly in psychology. I'd done odd jobs. And HubSpot took a real chance on me um, when I joined. I started uh, on our EMEA in Dublin uh, marketing team, working specifically on our newsletter uh, before transitioning into what I felt really passionate about, which was automation for our sales team to help them be more efficient. Uh, And when the opportunity then happened to join the first ever customer marketing team in 2019, I was like in there right away. That was the stuff I was really passionate about, like helping people use their tools better. And that team has grown so much over time to bring us where we are today. And I don't, I can't remember who said it. Maybe you remember Kat, but there's someone at HubSpot who always says, I think it might be a G to our head of customer success, that every two years HubSpot is a different company. And that evolution, I think the greatest one is probably that when I joined HubSpot, being successful meant taking on a bunch of random projects. You saw a problem, you went fix it. And now if you go and try and do that, that's probably someone's job. Like that's probably someone's job and you're probably going to get in the way. And like the name of the game is alignment and figuring out how you can best like help other people with the skills that you have. Um, And I think we've done that while also staying true to our principles of autonomy, customer focus, and generally doing the right thing. So I love HubSpot. And unless they drag me out kicking or streaming, I hope to be here for another six years. Yeah, I love that. And you're so right. I think when the values remain, you get that sense that you're still working at the same company, but of course, like change is inevitable. And HubSpot is certainly in our teenage years. And yeah, you're right. Um, the I wouldn't say the opportunity is less. Um, the opportunity has changed, right? I feel like everything we do now, to your point, like there's probably somebody doing that, but the size that we have gotten to, there's so much complexity or layers to that, that there's still room for that collaboration. I think actually being an international marketer, I would say that that's a big one of them, right? Like how are we doing things globally? But I feel like we could do a whole episode on that. Um, Casey, you are on the other end of the spectrum where you joined a year ago. Just really keen to like, what's your initial observations? Anything that like you hear or echo in Ivan's sentiment or what's that been like for you? 
Yeah, I haven't been here long enough to weigh in on the every two years, but I've heard that consistently. Everybody that I've talked to across the org who's been at HubSpot for a long time has said that phrase. What I've really loved seeing, I joined HubSpot knowing about the brand, knowing about the positive company culture and all of those things. What I didn't know coming in that I've been pleasantly surprised by has been the risk tolerance. You don't see that at every large company. Once a company hits a certain level of maturity, I feel like a lot of that willingness to take big swings and allow marketers to fail and to just do these big initiatives without a ton of historic data or context kind of goes away. And HubSpot has done a really good job from the executive leadership team down of encouraging people to continue taking those risks. And I think that's why it's been successful as a company. It's just continuing to foster that at every level. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, Evan, but that's so encouraging to hear mm-hmm. when you've been around this long, that if that's something uh, somebody newer to the company is picking up is really encouraging. Like I'd, I'd hate to lose that. But look, that's the uh, employer branding part of the episode done. So if you're interested in a role at HubSpot, <laughs> go to our careers page. No, <laughs> um, it's really good to, to get that insight into everybody's experience across the globe at HubSpot. So thanks for sharing. Um, but Ivan, you know, as you've mentioned, like a couple of different roles, always kind of within this space though. So bring us up to speed today. What does core automation mean at HubSpot? Um, what does your team look like? How are you structured? What does that really encompass for people uh, listening? Yeah, so our team is core automation and we are predominantly responsible for email automation across the entire prospect base and the entire install base. So we split ourselves into three core functions. Our jobs are to inform, to engage, and to generate demand. And within that, within the inform space, like we have hundreds of teams across HubSpot who all have something they need to communicate to our customer base, be it a product launch, a survey we need information from to make our products better. And our job is to ensure that we're doing that in a way that is like putting the customer experience at front and center. The kind of things that we look at there, like each program obviously have it has its own like metric on what it's trying to drive, but we truly try to keep those open rates high, our click rates high, and our unsubscribes low. In terms of like how that's performed over time, our open rates when we first started this were like close to like 15%, like they were really bad. And now we're up at like that 45, 50% mark consistently and driving really high click-through rates of like seven to 10, which is really exciting to see because people are loving. I always say like you are a guest in someone's inbox and if they don't pick up what you're putting down, like that's on you. You didn't bring them the right gift. I don't know if you take gifts when you open the door, but I would like to. engage space then our job is to like provide value and that's really what Casey's team and life cycle is focused on like how can we drive product usage help people onboard effectively and get them the content or resources that they could be successful and Casey's team have seen some really nice success there like some of our recent sends have shown like seven percent increases in product usage for the week after that someone has received just a single email and just in the last couple months we've all automated 250 hours of human time. So that's the kind of work we do in that space. And the final is demand, where once you have customers that know everything they need to know and they're really happy, you want to show them what else they can do with a tool like HubSpot. And at this point, 
10% of our sales team's leads come from our automation programming, which is really exciting. Yeah, I love that structure. It makes a ton of sense. So I guess to wrap at the Inform, we're really thinking about how we are keeping people engaged and educated. So your metrics there are going to be mainly around, you know, content downloads or engaging with that piece that we've shared, right? Engaged, we're actually going way more into product uh, adoption. So how are we actually linking people to I guess, value from the product. Um, and I'm sure we can get into more of what that can look like shortly. And then demand, you'd be looking more at those KPIs around booking a meeting with sales um, all the way through to the deal, right? You got it. As you said, the customer part of of this really came into effect in 2019, which, you know, will we... I, I was a little bit surprised. I was like, oh, were we a little bit late to that? And um, as normal, as you said, every two years we're a different company. What were the instigators for like, okay, we actually need to carve out a division for this, make it a team, really get some focus around it. And you've touched on some of the challenges, but um, I know that there were a, a number of factors, you know, that that got us to that point. So it really came down to two things. HubSpot was incredibly reliant on humans to drive customer success. It was like pretty much the you would either stumble upon things in your tools, you did your own research, or your CSM, your customer success manager, or your support rep would help you out. And what we realized is that we were scaling really quickly and we couldn't continue, like the amount of people we would need to hire to continue the level of high touch servicing we were doing was out of control. So that was the first. We need to help support customers, provide the same level of service, but we need to not just keep adding humans. The second one is we weren't selling to our customer base. Like customers didn't always have assigned reps. CSMs weren't always talking to them about their tools. And even if products could be useful, we weren't even selling. And it was even a question at the time about was selling to our customers even something we wanted to do? Like how big was that actual bucket? So the original customer marketing team was really about what they called creating a full turn on the flywheel. So we had obviously a really good demand engine built by inbound that drove leads. And then from there, how could we like really turn those leads into customers, then more than customers who purchased more and then customers who loved HubSpot and talked about it. So that was onboarding our customers via email, ensuring they had a positive experience, then highlighting products that might be useful to them, and then closing the loop by turning those customers into advocates. So that's where we started. Just to give people a better indication of that and when they might be thinking about investing in customer marketing, like you say we reached a certain size. Do you know how many customers we had at that point, how big the company was, where it became that tipping point of like, yeah, we have to get smarter about how we're doing this? I couldn't tell you how many customers it was, but what I could say is it was less about a volume. It wasn't about like a volume of customers number. Mm -hmm. It was about Mm -hmm. the level of growth we were having and that being unsustainable and needing to build out systems to support it. You know, when you're adding 40% on your customer base every year, you can't hire (laughs) quickly enough in order to support those. And then, so that was on the success side. On the sales side, what had changed was We used to sell a marketing product and then we just didn't have a marketing product. We also had a sales product. And then we even around that time had a services product. And we were like, oh, 
customers might want more than one of these things. So it was also, it was that part. It was the speed that we were growing with and it was the type of offerings and the expansion of those offerings and also being more powerful together. We knew that if people used all of these together, they were more successful and the data proved that out. Yeah, 100%. I love those two pain points that businesses might be feeling when they're like, okay, now now it's time. So the customer marketing function is formed. What were what were the first few months there? What were you seeing? What were the core ta- challenges you had to get on top of and iron out? I can imagine because <laughs> we were quite a size at that point how many there were. But yeah, what was what were you finding initially that you had to get on top of? So the exciting thing about that time was there were big challenges, but there was so much energy around doing it. And there was actually a lot of easy wins. Like there was, if people aren't targeting their customer base today, like we found like the first leg of it, like it got harder later on, but the first leg, it was pretty easy because there was so much low hanging fruit. Uh, The first challenge we had was that our customer success reps, our support reps, our sales reps, our people on the ground, they knew our customers. Our leadership team were making decisions and deciding how to put resources. They didn't know our customers. So the first thing we needed to do was we started like regular cadences where those leaders had to go talk to customers. We had customer meetings. We set up an entire customer experience team called the Voice the Customer, whose job was to teach the entire company about customers. We had regular meetings about customers and we really like made it like everyone's job was to like understand our customers. The second thing was email is a really important channel for contacting your customer base. And at this point, when you're doing it the way we did, which is building out a customer motion secondarily, we found that customers were receiving so many emails from so many different places, specifically 168 places, which we called shadow email. um, Wow. Of difference. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Um, 168 different instances of HubSpot that different teams or different individuals had set up to send their own email because everyone had something important to tell. So the most important thing we did was we took the keys. Um, We took the keys. We said, we own this now. There was legal compliance reasons why that made a lot of sense. But there was also a customer experience reason because at that point, 70% of our customers were unemailable or contactable via email because we were just sending so much random stuff. So taking the keys and putting volume limits and quality limits on who could send and why. The next thing is like in a a SaaS world like we're in, it's really important that you've really close alignment between your go-to-market and product teams. And that didn't really exist in the customer space yet. And I think one of the most important things we did there, aside from getting on the same page about the goals, was figuring out like when was email going to be good and when was product good. So what we basically decided was that when product's not good, like when you don't have a good in-app product experience, the responsibility of marketing is to educate. Like there's no in-app experience there or it's very disjointed. And our job is to educate customers. We need to tell them how to use their tools. And as product becomes better, which it is now in a lot of our, in a lot of places, when our product is self-guided, well, then our job is to motivate people to get into the app. We don't need to educate. We don't need to replicate. Just get people into the app. And the final challenge I'd say we have is we didn't know how to sell to customers. I remember getting on a call with a few of our sales reps uh, about it and being like, you know, running like, well, why are you not talking to these customers? Like we put them in your install base and they're like, 
it's kind of awkward. Like they just didn't know what to do. Like they were like, I actually like don't know what I am meant to say on these calls. And also I sold these people this stuff and it's kind of awkward. These are people who take, you know, get rejected for, you know, 50 times a day. And they were like, they didn't know what to do. So we had to take the reps who are doing it well and figure out how to teach that to everyone. And at the beginning, we actually developed a specific sales team we brought together a few members to work on that and figure it out and teach everyone else how to do that. So those were the main challenges and solving those together brought where we are today, where we're not just like piecing these little parts individually, but we're trying to build a full life cycle coverage all the way from onboarding through to someone's renewal and new purchases. Yeah, I can so see how all of that played out having been here. But the one that I would just like to go a level deeper into is around just the so many emails, right? Because so many people had important things to say to their customers. And like, I'm a regional marketer and we felt like we had really important things to say to customers too. So, and at that time, you know, our HubSpot marketing was really spread across the world. We operate in quite a few markets at that point. We had pretty established go-to-market teams in market who all wanted ownership of their database and to be able to communicate with their audience and their customers. So I think that's definitely one of those layers of like everybody who wanted to. So you know, in our region, we definitely have businesses that are uh, either a regional marketing team like like myself or are looking to expand globally. So just wanted to touch on, you know, how did we work together? How did we think about that when it came to working with regions, different database lists? Uh, yeah, any best practices there? Because as you said, we took away the keys. But I, I when you said that, I was like, well, in a way, yes, but you know that's I, I just certainly don't feel like I was locked out of our customer base. So how did we set up uh, and establish processes and systems there to work with our regional teams? I actually think APAC marketing is a great example of that. And I'd love for your, I'll give you my perspective, Kat, and then I'd love to hear you how it felt on your end. The way I've always thought about it is that as like the as the email team, our job, we don't have goals. Like our goals are the customer experience and supporting other teams. And by supporting the customer experience, our proxy for that is engagement and email health. And then each regional team has their own goals that they're trying to hit. And our job is to come together. And for me to be able to clearly explain to you, like, hey, look, here's like what you can do to like impact your email health, limit volume is a conversation you and I have had, um, limiting volume, not doing repeat emails. And like, here's what I think that'll do for you. And showing that like, you know, by doing better email practices, like you're gonna hit your goals better. And if you hit your goals with less email and better email, then my goals are hit. And like joining around that like shared goal, they're like, we're all trying to drive positive customer experiences. We're all trying to drive revenue for the business and just helping meeting people where they are and explaining if they are going to, for example, do a bunch of extra signs, here's the impact it's going to have. And are those trade-offs worth it? And getting really precise about the trade-offs you're making. Yeah. I think it comes back to you know, having that culture, you spoke to our company values just right at the beginning, but very customer first, like obsess over the customer, do the right thing by the customer, everything else will follow suit. So I think in that example um, where, you know, uh, transparently a van came knocking on the door going, oh, some of your metrics aren't looking too healthy. Like what was happening was in the regional teams, email is our main channel. You know, we don't own the website. We don't own social. We don't own a bunch of channels, but we have email on our, on our database. And so it can lead to teams going, well, that's the way I drive registrations to my event or to chat to sales teams. And yeah, I think maybe we hammered that a little bit hard. And I think 
you have to sort of just take ego out of that and say, well, how can we get the same result in a better way? And it really comes down to better practices. We really rethought our email strategy locally. We lent into things like newsletters, which could enable us to say more things in one space. And yeah, we had to make sure any communication we sent was so on point that we could get the same response uh, as if before where we'd been sending maybe that email three times to keep trying to get that extra registration, you know, whatever it was. So yeah, I think when your focus is really rallied around customer experience, you change your approach. Um, and, you know, as a team, we came up with those measures and metrics for database health and we obsessed over them. Uh, and I'm pleased to say we're in a better place, right, Yeah, <laughs> We were, we were, we were good it. international counterparts for you. <laughs> Honestly, like, I think so much of it came down to like collaboration and like honesty about where each of us were coming from. Like, that's what I always really appreciate. We're working with you, Kat. I would be like, look, cards on the table. Here's what I care about. And you'd be like, cards on the table. Here's what I care about. And then that allowed us to come together and be like, okay, well, what does the like meeting point of these two things look like? And in addition to the specifics you called out around like the newsletters and like the like the best superior content, targeting was a huge part of that as well. It's yeah, like not everyone sure. in your data base is a fit for this. So like what's like the part where you're going to hit 90% of the people who want to attend uh, the webinar in, or engage with that content? And then let's go after those people and the other people, you can hit them next week with something else. And it just all begins to work out. Yeah, love that. I'm so glad we're talking about this today. I think the timeliness of specific, specifically about how you're engaging and add, adding values to customers is so important because um, I'm sure this is, I'm going to guess this is similar for you guys in your market, but definitely here in ANZ, there has just been this massive shift in, I would just say this year alone towards, you know, I think a lot of businesses will say that they're customer first, but really it's happening where companies are starting to obsess over, you know, the new metrics now are customer attention and loyalty and uh, adoption. And so we're really seeing this, you know, every time we go to an event, every time we speak to customers, it is so top of mind. So loving the timeliness of this episode. And Casey, you know, when we think about supporting our customers and as brands think about what that can look like through automation, curious, do we have a typical, if there is such a thing, journey for our customers at HubSpot and how we think about taking them through that? Yeah, the fun part about working in lifecycle automation is that the more advanced you get, the less of just a typical journey there's going to be. It's going to go from early stages of we've just implemented lifecycle automation and here's our pretty map of exactly what automation people get throughout every stage of their journey. You break that really, really fast when you get more advanced with it. So what we're essentially aiming to do is take those standard lifecycle stages because those realistically don't change very much between you know, whether you're very advanced or very basic with your automation, it tends to be you need to get customers set up on your platform, you need to get customers onboarded, you want them to use it, and you want the, them to use it well and in ways that serve them well. And then you want them, hopefully, if you're a SaaS business, you want them to renew their subscription with you and then start back. And obviously, there's nuances in between. But what we've done is take those different stages, build kind of the bare bones of what do we need to have? For example, even mentioned earlier, just the onboarding automation. Start there. We know they need to get onboarded. Yes, there's personalization involved in there, but it tends to follow a pretty typical process. Get all of that in place and then start building on the fun stuff. So it does make it to where if you look at you know, 10 different contacts, they're all going to go through a slightly different journey, but it'll pass through those stages. And that might be dependent on who they are. Are they a marketing manager? Are they the billing contact? Are they, you know, the company owner? That's going to look very different. 
It could be, you know, are they in their renewal period? Do they have humans that they can talk to? Do they have an assigned customer success person? All these different factors. But I do get asked quite a bit. I got asked earlier today by somebody on another team, do you have a map you could show me? And I said, oh, I have like a nice framework for you. But if you were to look at, like I said, 10 contacts, it would definitely break that really quickly. And they divert from that and get increasingly personalized the more that we build on. Yeah. And I think that is what can trip people up from even starting, right? Is just that, well, nobody's going to fit into this neat bucket I'm mapping out. I can't, I don't feel like I've got complete visibility therefore, and it's really messy and I don't know where to start. So yeah. you mentioned framework. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was hoping that maybe you could give a preview into maybe how companies or listeners today can think about their lifecycle stages, if they are maybe refreshing them or even starting from scratch. Yeah. And I remember the first time that I did this from scratch, I almost cried because I took literal (laughs) sticky notes in the office and I was sticking them. This was, you know, my first job in Lifecycle and I got asked to create a map. And I was in tears by the end of this. There's like (laughs) hundreds of sticky notes on every possible outreach. And it was a, where do you start? Essentially came down to you start somewhere. (laughs) It doesn't really matter all that much where you start. And it does get a little, it's not less complex, but it does get a little easier as you go on because you build the momentum, you know, you figure out kind of what formats work best for you. But the framework that I recommend people get started with is take your various segments. You can segment your database however makes sense for you. That might be by region, by your tier. So if you have different, you know, plans Um, For HubSpot, it's, you know, by hub, by are you a starter customer or a pro customer? Take those different buckets for your customers because those will have fundamentally different journeys. They'll have different actions you want them to take because they have different tools they have access to, for example. And then you're going to look at your lifecycle stages. So just the general ones that, like I said, almost every company is going to have that onboarding stage, renewal stage, general product usage stage, and layer onto that are they healthy during that stage or not? Because you're going to treat the customers by stage differently if they're doing what they're supposed to do versus if they're not doing what they're supposed to do yet. So for example, I might say, if I am a marketing hub pro customer during onboarding who has not yet activated on my tool, that's a separate category from who has activated on the tool. Um, You're going to decide for each of those things. So one segment at a time, what's the primary goal I want this audience to take in this stage? So onboarding, activation. I want them to get activated in their account. Anything other than that is going to be noise at that point. What you'll do is you'll map out all of your current outreach. That could be marketing. It could be CS. It could be, you know, any number of teams reaching out to customers. But you're going to say right now, what is a person getting? What is a person hearing? Are there mixed messages? Are there opportunities where we need to move something out of the onboarding stage and into another stage, for example? And then you can start putting like your ideal. Okay, it looks like based on what we already have here, we don't have enough activation driving reach. We don't have enough focus on that from our marketing messages. Maybe we're over-indexing on upsell for someone who hasn't yet activated. So that's the way I like to look at it is get down to that one segment, start there, get that stage of that segment really, really clean. And then you have a framework to use across all of these different conversations that you're having. Um, There's a template actually that I've introduced a few people to on Miro that I think it's called like customer journey template or something like that. That's literally like an online sticky exercise to do exactly this. So that's how I'd approach it. You can do it a million different ways. There's not a right or wrong answer, but it is very intimidating just to say, I'm gonna build out a pretty map that shows every single potential journey that somebody could go through. 
Yeah, we'll add that resource into show notes for the template mm-hmm. so you don't have to uh, be like Casey and crying in a boardroom with your <laughs> sticky notes. The van was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it wasn't at HubSpot, to be clear. It was okay. not a HubSpot <laughs> exercise, fortunately. All right. This is your first go at it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, as you were going through that, there's obviously a lot of elements that you need to consult as you get answers to some of those questions. Um, curious what teams you align and partner yeah. with closely during this activity. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it Honestly, anyone who's doing outreach during that stage. So hopefully by the time you're getting this down on paper, you've built those relationships or at least made the introductions. For us, this has been brainstorms with our CS team, like pulling in customer success and saying, what are you doing during these stages? What are they getting from you? Show me some examples of really high performing ones, that sort of thing. So depending on the stage, Onboarding, it tends to be our customer onboarding specialists, our growth product group that builds in-app onboarding experiences. Um, It really just depends, but I do think that while you're not going to be directive to other teams necessarily and tell them, hey, don't do this because it's a bit of an overstep for marketing to come in and say, don't reach out to them like that. Once you have that conversation and bring them in, if you identify areas where you say this is not a good customer experience, that this potentially this other team is doing something disruptive to the core goal for the stage, you've brought them along for the ride. They see your thought process. And it's really easy then to make joint decisions that actually allows marketing to have an impact across the entire org to improve the customer experience. So really fun conversations, sometimes really tough conversations. I even brought up the concept of trade-offs earlier. I feel like that's a daily conversation is, well, is the trade-off that you know our demand is lower if we do this, but potentially our activation's higher. It opens the door for those conversations, but you are all getting a voice in the room. Ivan, Casey, I love this episode. We've just, there's just so much value you've jam-packed into a short amount of time. The tips, the examples. Um, I feel like I've just had a bit of a, you know, blast from the past over the, my last seven years at HubSpot <laughs> with, with all of this. But thank you so much for sharing. Really interesting. Love your perspectives. And thanks for giving up your time today. Thank you for having us, Kat. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Despite all these new channels available to marketers, it's safe to say email marketing is definitely not dead. If you liked this episode, keep an eye out for our bonus mini episode with Casey and Ivan, where we share email best practices, frameworks, and tips to put these lessons into action for your email strategy. And if you enjoyed Inside HubSpot, please subscribe and check out all our resources in our show notes or head to hubspot.com forward slash inside HubSpot. We'll catch you on the next episode.